Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given to you by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Elizabeth Earnshaw. Elizabeth is a licensed marriage and family therapist, the founder of A Better Life Therapy, the author of the best-selling book, I Want This to Work, a relationship advice host on the iHeartRadio morning show, Good Risings, and co-founder of a premarital relational wellness company called Ours. So Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. So that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. So um, as, you did such a great job of introducing me. So I don't know what else I could say, but I'll dig in a little <laughs> bit. I, I'm Liz Earnshaw. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I specialize in working with couples and families. So relationships are my favorite thing to talk about. I... Um, have my certification in Gottman Method Couples Therapy. So that's often like the lens that I look through things at. And I also work in a private practice. So I see couples. I've seen thousands of couples actually in my time as a therapist, which is really wild to think about. Um, and I also co-founded Ours, as you mentioned, where we support people in building better relationships through actually giving them the relationship information that we don't learn in school. You know, I think most of us... Um, want to do a good job in our relationships, but we just imitate what we've seen and we react to what we feel. And so instead, we really want to help people to consciously choose how they are in their relationships. And I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I have a little boy. I am pregnant, so I have another little child on the way. Um, and I am married to my husband, Andrew. Wow, thank you for that. Also, congratulations. Thank you. It's very exciting. <laughs> well, thank you for giving us some more information about you and what you do. And um, to get into the interview, I wanted to start with a couple of questions. Sure. Let's go. Okay. So um, the first one is, what is proactive relationship health? So when we think about relationships or relationship therapy, I think what most people think of, probably with therapy in general, is the reactive stuff. I'm unhappy. We want to get divorced. We Somebody had an affair. We fight all of the time. And so we're going to go to try to fix this thing that feels really bad to make it feel better. So most um, relationship health focused types of things, whether it's Instagram posts or therapy programs or whatever, it's really based in that kind of reactive space of this is hard. How do we make it better? Proactive relationship health is starting from the beginning when things still feel okay. Not everything's perfect with any relationship, but really being able to look ahead and say, what are the things that we want to plan for? What are the skills we need to know? And how can we utilize all of that now so that we can keep our relationships healthy moving forward? It's similar to, you know, going to a gym before there's any problem, you feel good, but you go to the gym just because you want to go to the gym to keep yourself healthy. So yeah, that's what proactive relationship health is. 
I think that we do that in so many other facets of our life, um, like maintenance on our car or, you know, getting our house inspected to make sure that there aren't problems coming up. But I don't think that we really look into our relationships the same way or we give it that same respect because we don't really notice there's a problem until something goes wrong. Um, so to have that proactive proactive component to it, I think that that is something that's really important. So. Absolutely. And I think you're right. There's so many things that we do ahead of time. Um, we get the oil changed or mm. we go to the dentist before we have the cavity, hopefully, so that our teeth can get cleaned. Um, but when it comes to our relationships, we don't. And I, from researching couples and interviewing couples, a lot of that is very fear-based. There's a huge fear mm. of if I look under the hood, is it going to be a bigger mess than I can handle? And so people kind of avoid it hoping we're just going to stay in a good place. We don't have to look at the messy stuff. And because we're happy now, we're always going to be happy. But the thing is, is that all people, they struggle at some point when they're navigating life with another person. And so you're going to have to look under the hood at some point. You might as well do it when it's not as much of a mess, when it's when you're closer to the start of the relationship. That's so true. Such a good point. Um, and I, I really like that you pointed out that a lot of stuff can be fear-based because we may just be worried that if we do dig into it, we'll find an issue. But it's better to find the issue early when things are good, like you said, than to find it later when things are, you know, in a mess. So I, I really yeah. appreciate the proactive component that you have there. Yeah, super important. Okay, so what are some things, some common relationship issues that you see when dealing with clients? So when people come to their couples therapy in particular, I would say 99% of them all cite the exact same reason. And they say, we're here because we have communication issues. Mm. And that is a catch-all, right? People mean many different things when they say communication issues. So if you looked at people's intake paperwork, you would say every single person going to couples therapy is because they don't know how to communicate. But when I ask them, can you define what that means? People have many different answers. And sometimes they even have a different answer within the couple. For some people, they're coming to couples therapy because communication issues for them means that they're fighting a lot. So they try to talk about things and they get explosive. They say things they don't mean and they don't like that. For others, communication issues might mean we we just don't talk anymore. So I feel like I don't know what's going on in their life. I can't share what's going on in my life. I feel really lonely. Um, for others, communication issues might be something along the lines of we talk about things. But I feel like they never understand me. So I feel really misunderstood in this relationship. So the number one reason people come is often for one of those three things, right? We're fighting a lot. I feel misunderstood or we're just not connecting anymore. Some other big reasons that people come in are because of infidelity and it doesn't need to just be sexual affairs, right? Sometimes it's because someone um, betrayed their partner by spending money that they weren't supposed to spend or by lying about something significant like they said they had a job that they don't actually have and their partner finds out about that. And so that's another common reason that people come in. And then the third common reason would be sex. So 
the bucket of communication issues, um, betrayal, infidelity, those types of things, and then sex. Interestingly, though, if you really dig into any of those topics, and also some of the other ones that come up, like financial stuff and all of that, what you'll find what you'll find underneath is that there are a few common denominators for all of those things. One of the most common is stress, especially right now in the world. So if you asked me mm. 10 years ago, my answer might be a little different. Um, but right now, underneath any of this, we're not having sex. We're not talking. Um, my partner made decisions without telling me. So much of it is fueled by this like heavy burden of stress that people are experiencing and the way that it impacts their decision making, the way that it impacts their ability to be connected to somebody else, um, whether it makes them withdraw or become like overly frenetic. So stress is often a huge denominator. The other thing that when we dig in tends to be the actual issue is something called a perpetual problem. And a perpetual problem is something that is always going to be different between me and my partner. So it's very common. The majority of the problems that we have in our relationships are actually perpetual problems, which means that there is not an easy, straightforward solution. So I'll give a quick example. <clears throat> if my husband and I are disagreeing on money and it's not based on a perpetual problem. All we need to do is figure out the solution and we're going to stop disagreeing, right? So I say something like, I want to put this $300 towards my student loans. And he says, I don't think that's smart. I think we should put it towards our mortgage. And we sit down and we say, okay, why don't we put 150 towards student loans and 150 towards mortgage? That was just a problem. We can solve it. We're not going to go to therapy for it because we figured it out. Now, we could have that same conversation and never come up with a solution. Just fight. No, it's for my student loans. That's a stupid decision. Why would you put it towards your student loans? It should go towards our mortgage. Student, you know, The student loans are already getting enough of our money. If you're fighting about problems that should have a solution, but they, they never seem to, and they seem to become cyclical, it's likely that it's a perpetual problem. And what that means is that it's connected to something much deeper for you. It's connected to something that for you, most likely as a child, you had decided at some point that you were going to be a champion for that issue. And you don't really recognize that consciously. But in the finance um, discussion, it might be something like, you know what, I grew up with a parent who was really um, irresponsible with money. And so I feel very strongly that I have to have control over money. And I promised myself I would always have control. Or the other viewpoint might be, I grew up in a family, they were frivolous with money. And you know what? It was great. We had fun, never any problems. We spent money. And I think that's how we should be. And that's how I've always wanted to be. And so with communication, with sex, with betrayal, there's sometimes these things underneath where you're being fueled by something that is not conscious to you, by something that is underneath the surface for you and your partner. And no matter how hard you try, you can never find a solution because it's not actually about the issue. Wow. That is deep. Um, I threw and, a lot at the way you. Broke it, <laughs> <laughs> the way you broke it down, um, specifically about the, the root cause, <laughs> like with the financial issue that you mentioned, 
that someone may have been in a family or grew up a certain way where money was an issue. So there is that anchor on the decision that was made at a young age that they may not even be know is actually controlling and fueling the way they operate in the relationship when the finances exactly. are involved. Wow. Okay. So question yeah. on that, right? Yeah. So how important is communication that would allow someone to get to that root cause? And how, and how do you help your clients find out what the, yeah. the real root cause is? It's super important. And this is where communication can be confusing because people might think mm. well, we are really good communicators and we never get anywhere on this issue. I've given my position. I've talked about why I think we should take a vacation every two months. And no matter how much I've talked about it and been clear and fair, my partner keeps saying no, and we just can't come together. And so the basic communication of just being assertive and direct and all those things, they actually won't get you where you want to go because it's, again, not about the issue. So what I always tell couples is if you notice that you just keep fighting about something that should otherwise be easy, why are we getting in a cycle about sex? Why are we getting in this cycle about money? Why do we keep fighting about like where our kids going to go to school? Like, these are all things that have actual solutions related to them to slow down and to say, we're actually not going to worry about outcome for a little bit for just this conversation. It's not about finding a solution. I don't, we're not going to try to figure out, do we go on vacations or not? And actually what I want to understand is you keep saying no to me. You keep saying that you think it's frivolous to spend this money and I'm really curious, like where, what is it that you believe about how people should spend money? So the very first thing, just to break this down, that you should ask if you keep getting caught is for the other person's philosophy first. You don't have to ask about their childhood, none of that, because people don't automatically go there usually. Ask them what their philosophy is and use the word should, because should is about philosophy. It's not about what is real. It's about if you were the king of the world, this is what you think people should do to have the best life. And so if you say to your partner, we keep fighting about like the kid's bedtime. You think that they should go to bed early. I think they should have a more flexible bedtime. Tell me like, what is it that you think about kids and what they should do at bedtime? If you were the head of the world, what would you tell every parent in the world to do? And really hear out what your partner says, because what they're going to say is their philosophy. I think that they, that healthy kids should get to bed early. I think that they should have enough respect for their parents to give their parents time, you know, whatever that philosophy is. And then share your philosophy. Oh, that's really interesting. I think that kids should learn how to manage their time, that they should listen to their bodies and their body knows when it's tired, right? So we can speak for each position. After you talk about the philosophy, the beautiful part about starting there is that it's cognitive. So we're starting up in the brain, which people can do. It's not vulnerable to be up here. It's vulnerable to be here. So you've started up here. They're already kind of open. And then you can say, where do you think, what's the story behind that? So I always have couples ask this part, and this is where you get into the really good stuff. What's the story behind you believing that people should save money? Well, when I was young, there was this time where my parents 
paid for this really big addition on our house. And then the next week the roof collapsed and they had no money to pay it. And we didn't even have money to stay in a hotel. We had to sleep in our car for a week. And so that was a really bad story. What's then you ask your other person, what's the story for you? Why do you think people should spend money? When I was growing up, we never spent a dime. And my parents ended up dying and they had all this money and they never even went on a vacation. And I just don't want to be that way. So philosophy and then story. And then the next thing that you want to ask is if we did it your way, what would that give you a sense of? And what that means is it would give the person a sense of something. If we save, it gives me a sense of security. If we spend, it gives me a sense of play or liveliness, whatever it is. So asking what it gives a sense of. And then finally saying, if you don't, then what's the biggest fear? And this part's often really beautiful because people have some pretty significant fears about issues that at the surface seemed maybe a little silly. You know, like if you just heard the issue, you'd be like, all you have to do to solve this is X, Y, and Z. But they'll say, well, my biggest fear is if we take these vacations, that it won't just be the vacation. It'll be spending this and this and this. And then one day we could actually end up homeless. And it's like, oh my goodness. Like, I don't want you to feel, every time I talk about a vacation, you're feeling like it could lead us to be homeless. I don't want you to feel that way. So pausing, making it not about a solution, but about what is your philosophy? What do you believe? Where does that come from? What are you hoping to achieve for yourself? What sense in life do you want to have? And if I, if I am not going to go along with this with you, what's the worst? What's the catastrophe? What's the bad thing that happens? By doing this with each other, you're understanding each other. And once people feel understood, they feel safe. Because if you understand that the reason I'm saying no is because I'm scared, then it's not that I'm being a jerk. It's that I'm scared. And then you can help me to feel safe. Safety is everything. And it's it's so funny how it literally and almost every facet of our life plays a part in something. And what you just described, that is communication at the baseline, at the root cause of what the major issue is. So if you fight about the behavior resulting from that, you'll never really understand. So the way you broke that down, my goodness, that's incredible. Because now if I feel heard, if I feel understood, if you know the real reason, and then you can find an answer or a solution that makes me feel safe, no more issue. For that specific reason, anyway. Exactly. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, it becomes easy because you're like, "Oh, well, if you're worried we're going to be homeless, I certainly don't want that to be the case." And if your partner's able to say, "Well, if you're worried we're going to die and never have any fun, I don't want that to be the case either." What could we do together so we both feel good? What would happen mm -hmm. if every month we put two hundred dollars into an account, and whatever's in there at the end of six months, we use it for a vacation. That means that everything else that we had maybe got saved. So we're not going to end up homeless, but we still have the fun and the play. Or what if we each have our own account and I use my account to be really saving and to make sure we're safe and you use your account and have fun and play. But there's a way for, for people to come together and say, I see what your core need is here. And I'm willing to work around that. 
and we can come up with some sort of middle ground. We can negotiate now. Mm. I think the core need is literally where it is at. And I wonder if so many people who haven't worked, they didn't work because they didn't get to the core need. Yeah, I think that last part um, cut out. Could you say it again? Oh, I said, I wonder how many people who who haven't worked, they didn't work because they didn't get to the actual core need. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of people, when they get stuck in, we call them gridlocked problems. Mm. So it's just gridlocked. What actually starts to happen, you know, from research is that the gridlock is so exhausting that people disengage from the gridlock but they don't re-engage in a way that they're still connected. So it's either we're going to be gridlocked and connected or we just have to be disengaged. And so they disengage and they start to cascade into more and more isolation. So I can't talk to you about my vacations. I can't talk to you about my fears. I can't talk to you about my dreams. I, I can't talk to you. So now we're not talking anymore. And that's when people start to really decide that they're out. You know, and one person might do that more quickly. The other person might still be engaging. All right, fine. I'll finally talk to you about this. Let's figure it out. And the other person is like, this has been too exhausting. We've never gotten anywhere with this. I feel so disengaged that I'm willing to end this relationship now because I don't feel any of that connection anymore. I see. We spoke about this just a little bit. Um, yeah. And the root cause. But I wanted to ask how are fear and conflict really connected? They're really, they're, they're hugely connected. Um, when everybody gets into conflict. Not all conflict is about fear. We can just have a difference in opinion, right? And not all conflict is the scary type that we don't like to get into, right? Not It's not always yelling or disliking each other or whatever, you and I could have a conflict over sports. And I could say, I, I don't think that that was a good call. And you could say, I do think that was a good call. We're just having a conflict, but we're okay. And it's not because we're afraid. But the type of conflict that becomes something that when you walk away, you're like, who was I? <laughs> why did I speak like that? Or why did I withdraw in that way? It's almost always laden with fear, a fear that something really important to you is being threatened, that you're not going to be listened to, that the other person is going to leave you, not love you, that the other person is going to control you. That's a huge fear for people. And so because we're afraid, we start to act from a place of fear. Now, when people are afraid, they actually start to become overwhelmed by stress hormones in those moments. And this is something I think is so important for people to know because we don't talk about this piece, which is once you've started to get fueled with stress hormones, you aren't going to act the way you want to act. And so I could give you all the communication skills in the world. I could tell you you're supposed to ask your partner about their philosophy and dig into their fears and all of that. You're not going to be able to do it because the more afraid we become, the more our stress hormones increase, the more of a self-preservationist we become. And we start to say, I need to protect myself. I want to make sure that you're not going to take away something that's important to me. I want to make sure that 
you don't get your way and I don't get my way. And our biology actually starts to send these hormones into our brain. And the front of our brain, the top part of our brain turns off and we go into what's called the basement brain. And the basement brain is what we know as fight, flight, freeze is how we can respond in those moments. And so we start being a fighter. You're an idiot. You never listen to me. I can't believe that I murdered you. You, you're just terrible. No, talk to me. You have to talk. Do not walk away from me. Right. So that's, that's our basement brain. Yeah. Or we go into freeze and a freeze is what looks like to outsiders. Like you don't care. So you cross your arms, the person saying, don't look at me like that. Talk to me. And you're just looking off and you're saying, I don't want to talk to you. You're just frozen. Or you go into flight. And this is where people stomp out of the room. Um, I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm ending this relationship. Uh, on a lower level, it might just be I'm stomping out and slamming the door. And so I'm getting away from this problem. That's all coming from this bottom part of your brain that is totally fueled to survive. It would be really great if you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger because you would have to lay down and play dead or run away or hit the thing. But when you're with another person, it's not really helpful because that's not making you connect at all. It's actually pushing the other person away. If we can understand when I do these things, it's because I'm in my basement brain then what we can learn to do is you can't fix it in that moment, but you can learn to stop in that moment mm -hmm. and say, you know what? <clears throat> I, I can't shut up right now. And I notice I can't shut up right now. So I'm actually going to push myself to say, I need a break. Or for the person that is frozen and stonewalling the other person, for them to say, I can't talk right now. And for their partner to be able to be like, okay, I get it. It takes 20 minutes separate from the person for your brain to come back online. So you're not going to have a good experience if you keep trying to do this while you're in your fear state. Nothing's going to happen. Your brain isn't processing information. And so separating for 20 minutes, taking a shower, talking to a friend, writing in a journal, being separate from that conflict is what can really be helpful. Um, in terms of dealing with the response to the fear. Wow. So if you're in the basement, quote unquote, you need a minimum of 20 exactly. minutes to come back upstairs. Wow. You need a minimum of 20 minutes before you can come back upstairs. That's a good imagery. <laughs> you're in the basement. You're not upstairs yet. Wait 20 minutes and then try to come back. Um, the really amazing part is that once you come back, all the things that make us relational is up here in the top of your brain. And so once you come back online, you have humor again, you have affection, you can problem solve, you can have empathy. It is absolutely impossible for a person with just their basement brain to have those things. And so you'll know that you're back in your brain when you can like laugh at something again. You know, I know that I'm in my basement brain every single time that I no longer laugh at my husband's joke in the middle of a fight. You know, if he tries to 
we're, we're arguing and he tries to lighten the mood and he says a joke and I say something like, you have to be kidding me. That's not funny. <laughs> I know I shouldn't talk right now because I have no sense of humor. <laughs> That's cool so, that you so, gave. Yeah, learning um, how to yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? <laughs> oh, sorry. I was going to say it's cool that you gave your own personal experience because to be a relationship therapist, I mean, I think most people would look at you like you probably never fight or, you know, you've you've realized all the things and, you know, you guys are, you know, on cruise control. So hearing it, no it really humanizes <laughs> you, you know, so I'm glad you shared that. Yeah. You know, I actually, I have a great example from real life of how this looked in my house a couple of days ago, and I think it's relatable. So I'll share it if that's okay. okay. Um, sure, of course. My, my son, he dropped, he was being, a five-year-old all night. <laughs> he was <laughs> not listening to anything, spilling things, pulling stuff out of closets, putting messes on top of messes. Like he was just off the walls. And my husband had said to him, you know, it's, if you, if you do this one thing, it's going to break this thing that you're holding. And he was just like, da, 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 I'm going to do it anyway. And he's like hopping around the room. And guess what happens? He drops the thing he was holding and it broke everywhere. All three of us went into our basement brains. So my son, he froze and he was like, his eyes were wide open. And my husband went into like fight mode, um, not in like a scary way, but, you know, he was very much like clean it up clean it up right now. Can't believe you did that. I already told you not to da, 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 da. You got to clean it up. And my son was frozen. So my son's like, just looking and not cleaning it up, making my husband more in his basement brain. I'm telling you to clean it up. You haven't listened to me all night. Da, 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 da. What is going on? I went into flight and I said, the two of you are driving me nuts. I cannot be in this room anymore. And I stomped out of <laughs> and we're escalating each other. That's the other thing about people is if you, you all escalate each other. So if one of us had had a calm response, we would have all calmed down. So I stomped out of the room. And luckily, the one thing good about being a therapist is you know these things. So it doesn't prevent it. But I said to myself, okay, I'm in my basement brain. So is Andrew. So is George. This is not good. I need to take a couple minutes and calm down. And then I need to go in and help them kind of co-regulate. So I calmed down. I went in, I said, Andrew, I didn't say you're in your basement brain, but I said something along the lines of like, you need a break, like go in the other room, sent him in the other room. I was calm. So I could kind of kneel down and say to my son, it's okay. We'll clean it up. Take a deep breath. And by doing that, I was able to help him come back up the steps, right? And all of a sudden he stopped being so frozen and then he started crying. Oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to break it. And then, you know, my husband came back in and he gave my son a hug and said, buddy, I know, like it's just been a chaotic night. Like let's all clean it up together. But I like to tell stories like this because if you're, no matter if you're a therapist or like, I would say we're a pretty peaceful family most of the time no matter what type of family you are or what type of person, 
everyone goes there sometimes. And the more that you know it, it's not that you stop it from happening. It's that you say, uh, I just, I see what's happening and I'm willing to take a break. And then I'm willing to go back in and help us all get back online again. And that's the power in knowing about it. Awareness, I think. And and the Awareness. more you become aware, the more you become aware, you realize, like you said, I'm in the basement. I know I need time. And then you can come yeah. back in and co-regulate. That's Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah, sure. I think it's a good, <laughs> I think it's a relatable example. At least I hope so. But, I yeah, for sure. yeah. No. <laughs> no, it was, it was for sure. And like I said, it, it helps to see these things from, from therapists because you guys are human too. And I think a lot of times we, as like, you know, the, the general public who aren't, you know, in therapy or have backgrounds in psychology, we think you're above human, you know, normal human things. Yeah. I think that a lot of people, whether it's about a therapist or somebody they idolize online or whatever, they think those people aren't having the same difficulties. Did you just hear that? I have no idea what that was. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> We're just talking about you being human. It's fine. Just human and luckily not going into my basement brain. <laughs> Um, but, you know, I think that one thing I know from being a therapist and working with people is that everyone, I can say this with confidence, has a very skewed perception on other people. And so mm. couples will come in and they'll say, it's so embarrassing that we're like this. I, you know, we have these best friends who don't act this way. In the back of my head, I'm like, I actually see your best friend in couples therapy and they do act this way. But obviously, <laughs> Um, but people, individuals and couples have this skewed perception that nobody acts like I do. I, nobody else struggles to express themselves or feels embarrassed all the time or yells when they get angry or shuts down when they get angry. And what I can say is that really like behind the scenes, everybody does. Everybody struggles to communicate at varying levels, everyone struggles to soothe their own bodies. It's normal. Um, we're animals. And so the, the lucky part, though, is that we're animals with very smart brains. And so we can use the knowledge in our brains to help us to navigate our, our animal instincts to change things over time, but not completely. We're just human beings. And um, all of us struggle with our with our feelings and our reactions. So true. So, so good the way you made it just simple and easy to digest. Oh, thank you. That's good to hear. <laughs> very, very easy. I mean, it makes you make it just like it clicks like, wow, you know, and, and I guess because you have so much time doing this, you're able to, to, you know, say something that you've seen or that you've done enough times to where it's easy for you to say it and we may try and articulate it or explain it and just give up completely. So to be able to hear you say, this is what's happening. This is why it's happening. And I can say it because I've been doing this and this is who I am. It, it, it number one, it gives it validity and it makes it easy. Like I said. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so I wanted to move on to the next question, which is, what are some reasons why some aren't willing to forgive their partner? There's a lot of different reasons. Um, sometimes there's a, a good reason. And it's like, I just can't forgive you. You haven't shown remorse or this has happened over and over again. And sometimes that's a symbol in the relationship. If you feel like you actually cannot get to that forgiveness place, sometimes it's a sign of what's next. Do you need some individual support to decide that you want to move out of this relationship? Because you really can't be in an intimate relationship with someone you can't forgive, right? There might be an argument that you can be in some sort of relationship with some people that you haven't totally forgiven, like maybe your parents or something like that. But if you're in a very close intimate relationship and you're not able to forgive them for something, then it's going to be really hard to be intimate because you need trust and lack of forgiveness means there's not trust. Now, sometimes we can't forgive because not because it's unforgivable, but because we haven't gotten some things that we need. And if we get those things that we need, we will be able to move towards forgiveness. And that's the more common outcome, right? And I've worked with people that have experienced things that are really painful, but they can get to forgiveness. And when I'm working with people on these, these experiences, we go through a process. The first part is atonement, and then we move to attunement. And then we move to attachment, like being connected again. In that attunement phase, what people really need is number one, patience. So if I'm really hurt by something um, and we're in the atonement phase and I say to you, you know, I know I keep bringing this up, but I just still can't believe that you lied to me. Or I can't stop thinking about you at the restaurant with that person you were cheating on me with, or tell me again, like, how did you meet them? Or tell me again, like, where were you going during the day when you said you were at work? When people aren't patient with that questioning, what happens is they say something like, when is this going to stop? It's been a month now. You've got to stop questioning me. You have to get over it. That patience piece looks like saying, I know you're still upset about this. I, I'll give you the same answer again. Here's the answer. Thank you for asking me the question. I want you to feel secure. I'll keep, I'll keep answering for you. I'm so sorry I hurt you, that you keep having this come up. If you can be patient, and this is the part I really have to coach people on in therapy. It's kind of hard to do it on your own because it starts to get irritating. You're a human being, right? But if you can be patient, that helps lead people towards forgiveness. And this isn't just romantic relationships, right? Like if a kid is kind of working through forgiveness with their parent and randomly they keep saying, you know, why did you, why did you stay with dad? I still don't understand it. Or I'm still really mad at you for what, what you did when you left us for six months when I was little. How could you have done that to me? The parent who says something like, you're 37 years old, you need to get over it, is not going to get the same type of forgiveness from their child as a parent who says, you can keep bringing that up to me. I should not have left you for six months. I get that you're upset about that. Or you know what? I, I don't know why I stayed with your dad, even though there was abuse. And 
you have every right to be upset about that. Thank you for bringing it up for me. So if people don't receive that patience, it's hard to forgive. The second thing that's really important is people like to see remorse. And I know that sounds kind of like sadist or something, but people <laughs> like to see that somebody else is hurt because they hurt you. And so if I'm telling my partner, you broke my heart, I'm devastated, and my partner doesn't look like it's hurting them, and they say, I'm sorry, but it doesn't look like it hurts, it's actually kind of hard to forgive. When I've worked with couples, they could both say the same thing, but there's going to be a couple that moves forward and a couple that doesn't. And the couple that usually moves forward is the one where the partner is like, I feel so hurt because you're hurting or they cry when they give their apology. Right. And they say, I'm embarrassed. I, I can't believe I, I hurt somebody that I love so much or I'm heartbroken that your heart is broken. Seeing that remorse and everybody's will look different. Not everybody cries and all of that, but you can see it. You can feel it. <clears throat> the other thing that people tend to need for forgiveness is for you to explain what you know about yourself that's going to make it different in the future. So I'll use the parent example. A parent saying something like, I'm so glad you brought this up to me again. And I'm really sorry. It makes me sad to think that you wanted me and your dad to split up and that you were so upset about it. What I know about myself now is that when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of confidence. I have confidence now. And I want you to know, like, if I could do it again with this confidence, it would be very different. With an affair example, it might be a partner saying something like, when I made those choices, I was not insightful about myself. I was feeling, um, you know, resentment that I wasn't talking about. And I am not going to get to that place again. I go to therapy now. I'm talking to you now. I'm very um, committed to being different. Being able to explain how you were different is really powerful. And then obviously like actually saying sorry. And so when, when people struggle to forgive, something I often say is like, which of these was missing? Like, are you not being patient? Is there not been remorse? Are you not explaining like what, what you know about yourself? And really, has there been an apology? Usually people will say, I've done all of them, except for like, I am not patient. I keep trying to hurry them along or... I have done them, but I have never talked about what I know about myself. And so you can utilize those four things to kind of dig into what else you might have to do for somebody if it feels like they're still not forgiving you. Well, that felt um, soothing to me. And I was just listening to you give examples of what could be done. So I know that in the situation, it would have to be really reassuring and comforting. So thank you for those pointers and those tips. Yeah, yeah sure. Of um, course. I wanted to build off of the forgiveness aspect and ask the question, what role does resentment play in relationships? Yeah, so resentment plays a huge role. Um, it develops over time. And there tends to be a lot of resentment in couples who don't actually express how they're feeling as, as they go along. They hold on to their feelings. 
And um, so that might look like a really passive partner who is upset about things, but they just sweep it under the rug because they don't want to start any problems. So maybe they're always doing all the laundry in the house and they're exhausted by it, but they never really sit down and say, this isn't working for me. We need to figure something else out. They just keep doing it, but then they're huffing under their breath. Oh, why am I was the one that has to do all of this? Um, resentment can also come from roles that are unspoken. So a lot of relationships have tons of unspoken contracts. A contract is the way we agree to interact with each other. But when they're unspoken, it's exactly as it sounds. We've never said it out loud. We just know it. And so it might be like family life roles. Like I take on the role of dealing with all the kids' school stuff and you take on the role of dealing with all the money stuff. But we've never talked about that. And maybe you resent me because I have no idea how much money we have. I never care about all the work you do to navigate the bills and I keep spending money. But because we don't talk about those roles because you think your role is managing the money, you resent me because you think it's my fault that it's a stressful job for you. When people start to resent each other, what starts to happen is they start to have their partner in something that's called negative sentiment override. That's a fancy term for saying, I see you through the opposite of rose-colored glasses. I look at you and all I see is negative, even when you do good. When you do good, I start to say things like, well, you only did that because you wanted to get something out of it. Or yeah, you were helpful this week, but you're not usually helpful. Now, the more we do that, what's it do to our partner? Well, our partner is then like, well, you don't like me. If you don't like me, I don't want to connect with you. And so if we're resenting, if we're building this resentment, we start to treat the other person differently. The other person then bounces off of that and they do more of the things that we don't like. And then we get really stuck in this, this negative cycle. Um, to prevent resentment, what, <clears throat> what studies have shown is to bring up problems as soon as you can, especially for men. Um, the research has shown that the more quickly a man brings up a frustration or a problem they're having with their partner, the happier the relationship is. Um, my guess would be it's because the study didn't really need to show if women are bringing up problems because they tend to bring up problems more often than men. The men feel them, but women tend to be more likely to say, we haven't been connecting or, you know, I don't really like it when you do X, Y, and Z, or why are we talking like this? Um, but men are kind of socialized not to do that. And so research has shown that men who are happier in their relationships bring up problems as quickly after the issue as they can, which means, you know what? I walked away from that and I'm irritated. I'm going to cool off. I'm going to let my partner cool off. But by tomorrow, I'm going to go and say, I didn't like that. That was really upsetting to me. Um, and that is really how you prevent resentment is you bring things up. You don't let them fester. Mm -hmm. That's also really good advice. And, and it's funny that they didn't do the study on women because I think men, like you said, we tend to feel it, but we may not speak out about it because, um, you know, if it goes away or if it's not talked about, it's not an issue anymore, but that also just yes. fuels that resentment cycle. So. Yeah, men, and of course, this is a stereotype, but research has shown that men are a lot more fearful of what emotions 
mean? And so they avoid the possibility that emotions will be expressed or shown. So where a woman, stereotypically, is less likely to be afraid of the emotion, they're more able to say something like, I was really upset with you earlier because they're more comfortable with the idea that you might say, well, I'm upset with you too, right? It's okay to say emotions. Whereas a guy at any, almost at at any risk is going to avoid that. And that's also why men tend to be less likely to go to, want to go to couples therapy is because they know that once you go there, there might be feelings and they don't know what to do with those feelings. And so it's like, I'm going to stay up here in my cognitive brain. We've solved the problem. We're not fighting about it anymore. Why would I talk about it? Because if I talk about it, we're going to be here. And I don't know what to do with that. If we're here and we just have a solution, I know what to do with that. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I kind of went on a tangent about that. But it is, it's interesting how it impacts. Um, so interesting. Couples and yeah. So interesting. Yeah. The way you just broke that down, like, wow, it, it makes so much sense too. And I, I, I saw myself somewhat in that because, you know, I'm solution driven. So once the problem mm-hmm. is solved, why do we need to talk about it? But that also doesn't solve the problem. So, <laughs> And also something I think that's really important is that that is also a really important role to be solution driven. I think sometimes we, um, especially when people are coaching kind of men, there is a need to coach them towards their emotions more. But then what might get lost is really the beauty of being solution driven. And I always say the best couples are the couples who have one emotion coach and one solution coach, as long as they're willing to accept each other's influence. So my husband is much more a solution coach, right? He's like, you're upset. I get it. And what what should we do? (laughs) Like, what are we going to do? And if I get mad at that, we don't move anywhere. But if I'm able to say like, Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, let's figure out what to do. That's a really beautiful combination because then I can coach him and say, I'm glad we figured out a solution and I'm still hurt about this. Can we talk about that? And then if he's willing to say, yes, I like that you bring that out of me, then together we can use each other's strengths. Wow. That sounds like such a recipe for success. So good. As long as both people are willing to appreciate the other person, which it's sometimes really tough to do. Yeah. Well, that's why we're having this conversation to make, to try and make it easier. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. I saw something that you posted that I wanted to ask you about. Um, What are the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse? So Dr. John Gottman is a relationship researcher. He's been researching couples since the 70s, um, thousands of them, and puts them in love labs, which are either actual laboratories or he watches them in their apartments as they communicate. And what he found is that there are four communication habits that when they're chronic, they tend to lead to the end of a relationship. So he said that it's, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse because it's a sign that the relationship is ending, like the world is ending. (laughs) 
Um, but what he also found is there's four things that people can do that signal a long-term healthy relationship. So the four horsemen that signal the end of times, we all do them. It does not mean we're all doomed, but if you do them chronically, it's going to be really hard to have a good relationship. And what they are is criticism. So criticism is when I, when I am putting a problem inside of you. So we have a problem together, but I'm putting it inside of you. So an example might be, I come home and our sink is full of dishes. That's our problem together. But instead of saying, whoa, we have a problem. Our sink is a mess. What is happening? I say to you, of course it's a mess. You are so, what are, what are you doing? You never help with the dishes. You always leave them here. Saying you always and never are huge signs that you're being critical. You never help me. You never show me affection. You are always a mess. You're always late. All of those things, criticism. The second of the horsemen is defensiveness. So defensiveness is when you perceive criticism. The person might have not even been critical. They might have said, oh my gosh, we have a messy sink. But you respond by defending yourself. And that either looks like taking a victim mentality. So you're always so mean to me. Or it means punting back criticism. Oh, our sink is a mess. Have you looked at your car lately? Or it means over justifying yourself. So defensiveness in that case might sound like something like, well, you know, I was going to get to the dishes, but I didn't get to the dishes because before I did the dishes, I got stuck in traffic and da 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 Or it's accepting the responsibility, but negating it with a but. So you're right. I was supposed to do the dishes, but, you know, I didn't really, I, I didn't get to it. So when you're defensive, you are not allowing collaboration with the other person. What happens with criticism and defensiveness is they escalate with each other. So if you get defensive, I'm probably going to get more critical, right? And if I get more critical, you're going to get more defensive. You might also do two other things, which is the third horseman is stonewalling. Stonewalling is when somebody gets really overwhelmed. Maybe the fight has gone on too long or they don't know what to say about it or they don't feel listened to and their body pumps with those stress hormones and they shut down. But to the person on the other side, it looks like they just don't care. They're a stone wall. And so they're not saying anything. They're not contributing. And then the fourth of the horsemen is contempt, which is criticism's big sister. And contempt is criticism supercharged. It's when we're belittling somebody. And so we're criticism. I'm on the same level as you. I'm pointing at you. I'm saying you never listen to me. Contempt is I have now put myself on a pedestal and I'm pointing down at you. And I'm saying you should be embarrassed at the fact that you still act like a five-year-old. You never listen. That's contempt. So there's disgust in it. There's sarcasm. There's smirking. Um, it's the only unilateral facial expression. So one side of your face goes up and the other one just stays still. And when you're using contempt, it's actually the most dangerous to the relationship. It's the most likely signal that your relationship will end. The good news is, is that we can easily replace all four of these with something else. By easy, I don't mean overnight, but it's easy to remember what to do. So instead of criticism, use I statements. I feel. I just got home and the sink is a mess and I feel so frustrated. So when you want to say you never um, come home on time, 
I was sitting by myself all night and I felt so lonely. You never show me affection. I am desperate for affection right now. I've been wanting a hug and I am so sad and also angry that I don't get hugs. That is being able to talk about yourself. The um, antidote to defensiveness is taking responsibility. Really hard for me to admit it. And you're right. I did not clean the dishes. Or you're absolutely right. I haven't been affectionate lately. I just haven't. And I see why you think that. The antidote to stonewalling is what we talked about earlier. Saying, I need a break. I'm, I can't talk right now. And the antidote to contempt is being able to actually narrate your feelings. So when people are contemptuous, they've got big feelings that they're not saying. So instead of saying, you disgust me, saying, I am so angry right now. I want to put you down because I'm so angry. I'm not going to put you down. Or I'm so disappointed. I'm so betrayed. But being able to say your feelings instead of pushing the other person and making them feel small. Um, so those are the four horsemen, but it's also the four things that you can replace them with. Wow. I think you just saved a bunch of relationships. For <laughs> that, that was such good advice. Yeah. And we all use them. We just have to work on using them less. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, because I, I know that there are instances when um, I could use that and, you know, opportunities to be able to be better in so many different things. So I'm, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm like, I'm just completely zoned in as you're talking because you're, you're, <laughs> it's just gold what you're saying. So. Well, I hope it's helpful. It is for sure. Okay. So I wanted to ask a question that I think may be um, part of the initial stage of a relationship or mm -hmm. when people don't really have a good understanding of themselves um, they may tend to look for things in other people. Um, mm. So what does it mean to be in love with the idea of someone? Yeah. So I, I feel like we've all probably been in a relationship like that before, <laughs> um, or maybe not even actually gotten into the relationship with the person, but been in love with the idea of somebody being in love with the idea of someone is when you're in a relationship and it's not really what you want it to be. And I'm not talking about on a basic level. All of our relationships can grow and change and people can grow and change and all of that. But I'm talking about in a big way where, you know, you're saying to people, you're saying to your friends, you know, I know that somewhere deep inside of there, there's a really nice person. Or once X, Y, and Z happens, I, I know that they're going to get to the point where they're able to express that they love me. Um, or I can really see them being successful in the future and, and meeting all of their goals. I know they're not doing anything right now, but, but once they get that motivation, I know they're going to do it. You're in love with this idea of who they're going to be. You're not in love with who they are right now. When you catch yourself doing a lot of that future talk to make this a reasonable partner for you, it's really important to reflect on, do I actually like who they are? Because yes, people can grow and change and all of those types of things. But like if they never grew and never changed from this, am I able to say, I love this person and I feel loved by this person right now? Or is everything have a caveat where I'm saying, 
I'm in love with this person because I know one day, or I don't feel loved by them right now, but I know one day they'll be able to love me. If that's what you're doing, then it's likely that you're in love with this idea of somebody. Wow. And I think if if you can't answer those questions right then and there, or if you can answer them and the answer is no, then that kind of gives you an idea of of where you should be instead of projecting on what this person could potentially be because they may never reach their full potential or what you think they should be. You might think that their full potential is something different than what they even want for their own lives. Right. Wow. Yeah. That was a good one. Um, Okay, so now another question. (laughs) How important is it for each person to maintain their own identity within the relationship it's really important if when people lose their identities in relationships at first it kind of feels okay because you're like super head over heels with somebody and you're like oh i i don't need my own things anymore i just want to spend time with them all the time over time though you're in a real relationship with someone and you're still with yourself and we talked about resentment earlier and resentment can really come from not having that self-identity. So if you start to believe I've given up the things that are important to me, my values, my goals, the things I do for this relationship, then you're really putting a lot of pressure on the relationship. You're saying it's all the relationship's fault that I'm not me anymore. Um, and so even at the beginning of a relationship, just being really mindful, am I still focusing on? Am I still doing the things that are important to me? Even though right now I'm pumped with hormones and I don't necessarily want to, am I making sure to still nurture my friendships, my goals, and all of those types of things? I think there is a big importance to it. And I I appreciate you expounding on that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So let's say you have realized that it's not the idea of the person that you're in love with and that you're doing all things well, but you get to a point where you feel like you are, have outgrown your partner. Um, Does that mean Mm -hmm. that you have to move on? Hmm. It doesn't mean you have to move on. Like anybody can choose anything, right? Like some people I've worked with people who are in relationships where they choose to still be married. Um, and they both admit we've outgrown each other, but this setup works for us. Um, but what is really important is if you've outgrown this person, how is this impacting both of you? Like, is this really a satisfying thing for both of you? Or are you staying in this relationship based on fear? If you're staying based on fear and By fear, I mean, it could be like, what am I going to do after? Am I going to be alone? Will I ever find anybody else? Um, Am I going to hurt their feelings? Are their families going to, is their family going to be mad at me? Um, If that's the only reason you're staying in something, a really great reframe is that that's not fair for them either. Sometimes we do it because we're like, we don't want to hurt them, but it's more hurtful for a person to be in a relationship where they're not being fully cared about and loved and where somebody's just sticking around because they feel bad, not because they actually want to be in the relationship. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so I saw another post of yours that I want to quote, and it says, when something happens and couples don't talk about it, they become fault collectors. I think we Mm -hmm. spoke about that a little bit already. 
Yeah. So when things happen in our relationships, kind of like what we were talking about before, sometimes we'll just hold on to them. And we might talk about it a little bit, but if it doesn't get anywhere, we just start to collect all of these faults that the other person has and we tally them up and we just kind of walk around thinking about their faults. And when we try to talk about future issues, all of those faults, they come in this box with us. And so we're in a fight about something. And instead of just fighting about that one thing, arguing about the one thing, I open my little box and I'm like, well, you know, it's not just this. Do you remember five years ago when this other thing happened? Or why would I, why would I give any flexibility to what you want? Because do you remember you didn't give any flexibility to what I wanted? And so there's this collection that we hold on to of the things that the other person's done wrong. And then each time we argue, each time they do something wrong, it just makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. And no one can overcome that, right? I mean, they can overcome it if they used to talk about it. But if you're collecting another person's faults, what in the world are they supposed to do? They, they just have to sit there and hear everything they've done wrong. And so... Once you can identify that this is what's happening, you can say, we really need to sit down and talk about all of these things that have hurt us. And can we go through that atonement phase to get through it? Can we uh, resist having resentment for each other and instead actually own up to what we're feeling and be willing to move forward by apologizing, understanding each other better, um, but what can we do so that I don't keep bringing this up every single time that we're upset with each other? Gotcha. This has been so incredible. And I think it gives a window into what it would be like to be um, a client of yours in your office and just to be so surrounded by all of your knowledge and all of your wisdom and, and all of the practical things that you do. And I'm really grateful that um, you agreed to do this with me and that you're willing to share. And I just have one last one. That's the big one. If anyone okay. is struggling, <laughs> if anyone is struggling <laughs> to talk to someone about their feelings um, or their relationship or just difficulties that they're having and communicating or anything and, and they're on the fence. What would you say to them? I would say that I totally understand. It's really, really hard. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. Um, and honestly, your body probably doesn't really want you to do it because it puts you into that fight, flight, or freeze mode. Maybe you're feeling frozen by it. And what I would say is that once you do it, it's one of those things where you've got to fake it till you make it. You're afraid to do it. It feels uncomfortable. But once you do it, it actually starts to change your wiring around it. It starts to make it feel safer to talk about things in general. And so my biggest advice is to do it in the way that feels safest to you at first. Maybe that means just journaling about it. And then maybe from there, it means that you email a therapist and you give them a little bit of insight into the email. Hey, this is what I'm looking for. And you can do these really small risks asking for help, talking about your feelings so that it's it's small enough that it's still inside your window of tolerance. It doesn't feel over the top. And then moving towards like, maybe I can talk to a therapist or maybe I texted my partner that I, I want to talk and I'm feeling certain things. And maybe we can now schedule a time to talk to each other, but it's okay to do things in small, small bits. If that helps you to feel safer 
but you've got to actually push yourself to do it. And you're not going to want to do it the same as anything else that you don't want to do. You don't want to go to the gym. You don't want to open up your bank account and actually look at how much is in there. You just have to like close your eyes and do it. And once you do it, you're going to end up feeling better that you've done it. Wow. That was great advice. That was great. Okay. This has just been great. Um, like I said, this I'm I'm overwhelmed with how many tools you've provided. And I think that this is gonna be so wonderful for, for anyone that um listens to it. And even if it's just one person, one couple, we we still did our job. So well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to to chat about my favorite topic with such a nice host. And so I really appreciate oh, you having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much. And where can people find you if they want to look you up online or on social media? The easiest place to find me is at my website, which is elizabethearnshaw.com. It has all of you know the links to my other things. You can also find me on Instagram at Liz Listens, or you can find my book anywhere books are sold. It's called, I want this to work. So Barnes and Noble, Amazon, any bookshop.org, all of those places you can, you can find the book, but the easiest place, go to my website and you'll see all the links there. Gotcha. Okay. Well, again, Liz, thank you so, so much for this. It's been great. Um, the way you do things, the, the knowledge that you were able to, to impart, I'm so grateful for it. And I'm sure everyone else will be too. So thank you so much. Thank you.